This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Well, this has been the most that the country has talked about the State of the Union and the run-up to a State of the Union in recent memory. Certainly, when I was in the White House speechwriting office, we were obsessed with State of the Union, and preparation started very early, uh, pretty much in November, and it was all-encompassing, and we'd end up with an annotated book of you know, hundreds of pages documenting every single fact in the exhaustive State of the Union. And I guess today Nancy Pelosi made the point that no one in the country cares about the State of the Union. But I actually think that this has been the wrong approach. The State of the Union exercise is probably the only time that the Trump administration really thinks about their policy priorities and the act of putting together a State of the Union forces an administration to think about what their priorities are going to be. And I think it's negligent on behalf of other politicians in the public to let the White House off the hook a little bit on this one. What do you think, Steve? I don't know. I hear where you're coming from. I guess where I would default to is that for much of the history of the country, the State of the Union was delivered in writing to the Congress. The spectacle that we see today with the applause lines designed to incite half the chamber to stand up and applaud and to incite the other half to sit on their hands over and over again, it's theater. I believe what started with President Reagan, though I could be wrong about that, was the person who the president would refer to sitting in the first lady's box. It's become increasingly, I think, less disconnected from the actual state of the union and more deeply connected to the state of politics, to the president's agenda. So I don't think anybody in the country is going to lose sleep over the fact that we won't be hearing from President Trump in Uh, the Capitol on Tuesday. Um, I do think it's good at some level that the country is spared the declaration that the State of the Union is strong when everybody knows it's not, and the mass self-delusion that's required to believe that it's so. And so, and I guess lastly, what I like about Nancy Pelosi's move here, the Speaker's move, is that Donald Trump is not king of America. And I, I, for one, believe that executive power in the country has swung way out of whack. The pendulum has gone too far adrift, if you will. And the reality is, is that we have three co-equal branches of government. The Article I branch, the Congress, is not subordinate to the president. It's co-equal. And she's in charge of that branch of government. She's a constitutional officer. And I think it's appropriate, so long as the government is shut down, uh, that we don't hear the president deliver the State of the Union to the country, because I think the whole country understands without having to be told how dysfunctional it is. I think that Pelosi's move is far more important in terms of establishing her territory and standing up against Trump much more than just the symbolism of a state of the union. But, you know, still my speechwriter bias here, 
I do think that it's an important exercise for an administration just because government is so sweeping and can be out of control and unwieldy. And it is at least an attempt for an administration to present an orderly vision, a laundry list that can really be boring as hell, but at least gives the country a sense of what the priorities of the administration are. And I guess in the sense that the Trump administration priorities are catering to Donald Trump's ego, really it's not as necessary for us to have this exercise, sadly. Well, maybe you could have a bunch of Russian and Saudi real estate investors over (laughs) around the real estate room. Ivanka, Jared, and the crew could roll out the latest condo developments and call it a day. Um, I, I will say this about Nancy Pelosi, is that after two years of Paul Ryan, the supine speaker, somebody who refused to exercise the authority of his office to defend the integrity of the institution that he commanded. It's nice to see somebody exercising political power, not as a partisan, but as an institutionalist, to say that the Congress of the United States and and its role is this. And to see that exercise of power must be as educating to Trump as it is infuriating. But he's gone nose to nose, toe to toe, with the very formidable Speaker of the House, and she backed him down. And everywhere we look, we see his bumbling, his incompetence, stumbling into this trade war that our farmers are paying the price for, this government shutdown that everybody's paying the price for. But nobody has really backed him down until now. And I think that's terrific. And I have to say, I think it's terrific that it's a woman Speaker who did it. Oh, definitely there. And there's nothing that Donald Trump hates more than a woman putting him in his place. That's for sure. A strong, powerful woman. And that's what Nancy Pelosi is showing Donald Trump that she has a good sense of the day to day game and she has a long game. And I'm sure for him, it's not comforting to know that she is watching his every move, especially when it comes to the House and what's going to start happening with oversight in this administration. This government shutdown is so profoundly stupid over nothing, Uh, such an abuse of the American people, such an abuse of power. But here it is. And though it is stupid in its inception, There's now a profoundly important principle at stake, and that's this. You can't be rewarded for conjuring up out of whole cloth an imaginary crisis, precipitating a real crisis in response to it, demanding extraordinary powers as a result of it, and have the other side give in. There's a reason you don't negotiate with terrorists. And this is an example of that reason. If Democrats were to capitulate, the next demand, the next shutdown will be over something even more stupid, if it's possible to believe. And I'm not going to penalize myself with the lack of imagination on that front. But the stakes could be a lot higher. And so it has to be incredibly painful for Nancy Pelosi. And this is where I have real admiration for her in this. She knows the people are hurting. She knows that those people have been taken hostage by this repugnant president and his complicit Republican allies in Congress. 
But nevertheless, she understands that her duty is to not blink, to not break, because to reward this creates so many disasters down the road, you, you can't even count them all. Well, and every day Donald Trump's popularity takes a hit, every day this shutdown extends, it really starts chipping into his, you know, 35 percent that will always be there. But as the you know, we start to have problems at the airport, we have so many men and women in local communities who are not receiving their paychecks. You have uh, the food that is coming into our borders and not being inspected. You have all of these little things that the government does that you don't think about. And as someone who was always more of a libertarian and leans towards small government, wow, talk about just giving an advertisement for the many ways that government actually does matter in our lives. No doubt about that. And there are all manner of essential functions that are going unfulfilled, as you said, from food safety inspection Centers for Disease Control, National Institutes of Health, from our scientists working to cure diseases to TSA workers working to protect us in airports to people working in the Social Security Administration. But by and large, these civil servants, these government employees, no one is getting rich in their government service. They get up every day. They're working class people in this country, middle class people. They participate in their communities. They coach the Little League teams. They're the church deacons, they work in the temples, they do ministry from the mosques. This is the fabric of America we're talking about here. The contractors that are working on their homes, the vendors that sell supplies, everybody in the in the economic cycle is, is harmed by this in a self-induced political crisis. It's really It's really quite terrible to watch it happening in real people. Are suffering, And of course, all the while, our gilded political class in Washington, D.C., and the corruptocracy that is the Trump administration, the champagne is flowing, the fundraisers continue, the black tie tuxedos are pressed and ready, and it all rolls along because all of these elected members are completely insulated from the pain of this. They continue to get paid just not the people that the American people rely on. Stephen, you bring up a great point about the disconnect between political elites, the political elites in Washington who are always casting blame on other elites. But let's go and review some of the things that members of the Trump administration and Donald Trump's own family have been saying about this government shutdown. I don't know if you saw this, but here is Lara Trump on the government shutdown. It is a little bit of pain, but it's going to be for the future of our country and their children and their grandchildren and generations after them will thank them for their sacrifice right now. How much more disconnected could the administration be from the reality of the impact of their actions on the men and women of this country? Well, I suppose she could powder her face white, put on a wig and a French aristocrat's dress and say in French, let them eat cake. But beyond that, I'm not sure I can come up with a further detachment from reality and how regular people are looking at this. Well, and Wilbur Ross, our 
Secretary of Commerce today, he said that, you know, unpaid workers, they shouldn't need to go to a food bank. Why don't they apply for a loan? This is someone who is tasked with overseeing the commerce of our nation. I I just I can't believe the level of depravity. The depravity is incredible. Wilbur Ross uh, is a monument in his own right to cronyism, someone who is spectacularly unqualified for the high government office that he holds. But in the catalog of miscreants, criminals, of nepotism, of all the unqualified weirdos that have come through the revolving door of the Trump White House, he's just a middling character. So we don't get to spend enough time talking about his incompetence and his disqualifications and total lack of aptitude for the job he has, which is unfortunate, but understandable given where we are with this administration. Yeah, it's about $200 million a week in government spending that's not happening. So communities have started to you know feel the heat and the hit. And you've got White House economic advisors like Larry Kudlow saying that, yeah, quarter one GDP is going to be affected. I don't see how Donald Trump can escape some political consequence from this stunt, just because it has caused inconvenience to so many Americans that his words, his rhetoric, his policies might keep them disconnected. But with this shutdown imbruglio, he has just shown utter incompetence and stubbornness and just ignorance as to how the country lives. Well, here's one thing I I think as we look at his support starting to attrit out, and I think it's become conventional wisdom that he has a hard base of about 35 percent of the country. And I think that's right until now. And so so long as those people were held harmless from Trump's actions, they could be for him. They may be decent people in real life, but they have become so hateful towards anybody who disagrees politically, so hateful of the other tribe. And by the way, that hatred is reciprocal. You see it flowing back from the far left as well. But now that you see people, soybean farmers in Iowa, the hit to the agriculture industry, what I think you're going to see now is an attrition down to what Trump's actual floor is, which is about 26, 27 percent as the bill starts to come due for his ineptitude, his malfeasance, for his incompetence. And so you will see that number lower from 35 to, I think, something closer to its natural floor at about 26 to 28 percent. And I think we also aren't anticipating what the long-term effects of the shutdown are going to be that we really have no conception of right now. I remember when the country first learned that children were being separated from their parents down at the border and everyone was outraged and upset about what was happening, you know, this, that we were literally, you know, living out the handmaid's tale down on our southern border. And then Six months later, we realize it's actually even worse and that doubled the number of children and that there are thousands of thousands more children who were separated from their moms and dads that we didn't know about. So I wonder over the course of the next year, the little things that didn't happen because of the shutdown, 
the cogs and the wheels that needed to be greased of government, how it's actually going to translate for Donald Trump. And I think you could be right that it could finally start to chip away into his strongest supporters. I'm going to go off a little bit on a tangent, Elise, and then bring it back full circle. So let me, I just wanted to declare it up front about something that just drove me particularly crazy, watching football games, watching the championship games. How is it conceivable, or first time in the history of the country, we have active duty members of the U.S. military, Coast Guardsmen and women, not being paid, who are in harm's way, but not being paid. How can it be that the government is shut down? Yet, when we look at the faux patriotism of the NFL and the league, how can it be that we're seeing military flyovers of the championship game and no doubt the Super Bowl when the American people are denied a State of the Union, federal employees are denied a paycheck, and that government has completely ceased to function? When you, when you ponder that for a minute, say, wait a second, you got an 18-year-old kid on a Coast Guard cutter in the Bering Strait who's not getting paid. What's the cost of flying four F-22s or a stealth fighter or bomber or some combination therein, a squadron of F-35s or F-16s or 15s or 18s? What's the cost of that? And... I just find it so offensive to look at the hypocrisy, to look at how regular people, the little guy, is constantly being screwed by this administration at the expense of the big, the powerful, the rich. It's just disgraceful. Just disgraceful as it is disgusting. It would be nice to see a senior military officer in this country, chief of staff of the Air Force, Chief of Naval Operations, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that says no flyovers unless and until everyone in the military is getting a paycheck, which includes the Coast Guard's men and women. I can't disagree. We did see just this week all of the former Homeland Security secretaries, including former Trump Chief of Staff John Kelly, saying that this shutdown had to come to an end. You know, you have half of DHS's cybersecurity and infrastructure security. Those people aren't working. They aren't getting their paychecks or they're working without pay. And I don't know, though, that I have much faith that Donald Trump is ever going to come around on this. So I don't I'm very torn over whether Democrats have to be the, quote, adults in the room and not cave on the wall, but just give some give Trump some kind of out because I feel like his ego and the cultivation of his ego and what this has become is just too terrible for so many Americans. And we just need to figure out some kind of I don't want to see him save face, but I do want to see the country functioning again and people who are doing an honest day's work getting an honest day's pay. I'm with you 100 percent. But I I think the only route to achieving that is to hold fast, to hold firm. And ultimately, enough Republicans will break and they'll break the spell of Trumpism. And so that's the fight that has come. Nobody chose this stupid shutdown except Trump. Nobody wanted to be in this fight except for Trump. But now that Trump has imposed this 
vicious stupidity on all of us. That's what it is, vicious stupidity. The elected leaders of the country, uh, the majority in the House by holding firm, eventually, because politicians are self-interested, and there is another election that looms out on the horizon who will, that will be here before we know it, is enough Republicans who like being in the Senate, who like being in the Congress, are going to break from Trump. And the unfortunate part about it is that this fight involves real suffering, real hardship, and real pain. But this pain has not been inflicted by both parties. It's been inflicted by one person and the people who pull on his puppet strings. We have a president of the United States who's so weak, who's so impotent, that he actually gives a shit what Ann Coulter says. He's a man whose ego is so deformed that he cares what's said about him on Fox and Friends. This is somebody who is jerked around and led around by the nose by Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan and all these members of Congress who, by the way, just voted in Vladimir Putin's interest with the dropping of sanctions for Deripaska, outrageously so, that we see this president so easily manipulated, so easily pulled to the worst angels of his character, and those are some dark angels in there. And and the suffering is real. But if it's rewarded, if it's rewarded by capitulation, the next time, and the next time could be next month, the suffering will be 10x or 15x. We have a president who inexplicably, except for the possibility, which is the only one that makes sense, is that there is a foreign power that has some undue influence on him, is talking about stepping outside of NATO. But he's inflicting such damage, not just at an individual level, but on the fabrics and bonds of affection between us as Americans, undermining our stature abroad and turning the oldest constitutional republic in the world that, despite our many flaws, was long a symbol of hope and admiration, he is reducing it into a laughingstock. And if you consider that the shutdown started on December 22nd, it almost seemed as if Donald Trump needed attention going into the Christmas break and was throwing a tantrum. And at the time, it all seemed so insane. And Donald Trump has had some moments of reporting this month that he certainly hasn't liked. He did not like BuzzFeed's report that he had had direct conversations with Michael Cohen, encouraging Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. And while Robert Mueller's office gave a caveat to that story, I would point out that it was a very legal caveat and Nothing so far has really directly challenged the story. And if I had to predict, I would say that probably BuzzFeed's reporting is going to be verified. But so if we have Donald Trump acting this unhinged and with so little concern for the lives and livelihoods of over 800,000 Americans who work for the government and the families that they support, how much worse is this going to get when 
Robert Mueller actually presents his findings to Congress? Well, it could get a lot worse. I, I think, and I, I've said this many times over the last two years, I, and I don't say this with any joy in my heart. I think there is a profound, and I mean profound, lack of imagination in the American mind about the capacity of Donald John Trump to cause a catastrophe where thousands of people wind up dead or more. The default position of the world is not peace and prosperity. We're, we're some 75 years from an event that killed 80 million people around the world when the world had half the population it does now. That, that event occurred within living human memory, though the people that survived it are at the end of long human lifespans. And it's just extraordinary to see the glee with which Donald Trump revels in talking about the dismantling of the global order that followed that catastrophe to secure peace and prosperity for the next generations of not just Americans, but people all over the world. So, you know, I had a conversation about a just right before Christmas with, with somebody who had reluctantly voted for Trump in their view, did not like him, thinks he's a fool, uh, could not bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton, believed uh, that, in fact, there was no material differences when corruption and competence with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I strongly disagree with that point of view. But the last time I'd seen this person, he had said, stock market's doing great. And, and first time I, I saw him after that conversation, I said, how's the stock market looking? He's kind of said, oh, boy, and, and a real worry about Trump, about what was going on. We're entering year three with this guy, and he operates the steering wheel of the American ship of state as ineptly, malfeasantly, irresponsibly as any drunk behind the wheel would. And ultimately, there's a consequence for that. The, the consequence we're feeling now is real. It's disproportionate. It affects some far more than others. But the idea that this guy isn't capable of precipitating a tragedy, the likes of which we haven't seen in this country in 80 years, it's entirely possible. Ooh, I can't say I disagree with that, but it is sobering and important to keep in mind that these huge shifts in American foreign policy and our behavior in the world and our posture with allies are occurring at the same time that the chattering class wants to debate what did or didn't happen with a teenager and an older protester in Washington. So Donald Trump has been incredibly adept at shifting our focus and getting us to turn to the shiny object of the day. And I, for one, made it my New Year's resolution to spend way less time on Twitter. I haven't done that well with it, but I've done a little bit better. And I must say, just trying to take a longer view of this news cycle, I think, is a really 
good thing that I highly recommend for anyone who is overdosed on this political cycle at the moment and Donald Trump in particular. No doubt about it. I think, at least, the most famous equation in the world is Einstein's E equals MC squared. And if I had higher than a fourth grade math level, which which might be a bit of a stretch, I'd come up with an equation that basically tried to communicate that the stupider and smaller the debate is in Washington, the more trivial the focus of the media is on the outrage of the day, the better it is for Donald Trump. And the worse it is for America and the American people. And you look at just the drag that Donald Trump has been on our culture right now, unlike any other moment that I can remember throughout my entire life. I feel like the public discussion is less dominated by anything in the artistic realm, be it movies or just mass culture than Donald Trump just having taken over the day-to-day news cycle and delighting his supporters and driving his opponents completely insane. And the takeover also has happened at the RNC, which I thought was a pretty semi-serious body. But you look at how they literally will do anything to kneel before Donald Trump and it looks like there are perhaps a few individuals who are on the RNC Resolutions Committee who want to give, quote, undivided support for Trump and his, quote, effective presidency and try, you know, in an attempt to stave off any kind of primary challenge to Donald Trump. That's the most shocking thing about this entire era to me is that Even when I looked at people and within the Republican Party that I disagreed with so much on, people that I thought were frauds and hypocrites, the Franklin Grahams, the Jerry Falwell Juniors, the category of religious right frauds, the money changers in the temple of our of our era. I never thought I thought that they were corrupt. I thought they were self-interested. I thought they were full of shit, but I never thought that they were fundamentally illiberal that they didn't like democracy, that they were against voting and elections. And and what you see is this illiberalism abounding around inside of the Republican Party, which is that you can clearly see the critical mass of people in American public life, many of whom have sworn oaths of office to preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, that if an election was inconvenient for them, well, let's get rid of the elections. And you see this with Scott Walker in Wisconsin and in North Carolina with the stripping of executive powers from properly elected Democrat successors to this idea that we'll just cancel the we'll cancel the primaries. No, it has been a complete embarrassment how There just isn't any core there. And I was delusional for believing that there was and thinking that there was a party that at least cared about protecting individual liberty and rights and equality for all. And really, it's just go along with the party as long as they're still going to use you as a vendor and you can still 
keep banking off of the complete corruption of a political party that stands for nothing except the highest bidder. Completely corrupted, completely nihilistic. And one of the things that I, just as an exercise, I I think would be fun to do is once you get to baby and child internment camps, and you can excuse that, and you can mainstream that, you can do the full Kirsten Nielsen on that. When you can apologize that away. What's the next line after that and the next line after that that people would defend? When is too much too much, right? What is what is the order that's given that somebody says, no way? When is the policy pronouncement made by Trump that somebody says, I'm not doing that? When is the action that breaks the cult? What is it? When you look at where the Republican Party said it stood, at this moment in time as an institution four years ago, and what its members claim to believe in, it's clear that four short years later that none of them, and by that I mean most all of them, believed nothing. It was all a giant con. Torturing young children by forcibly separating them from their mamas and daddies isn't the straw that breaks the camel's back. I think you're unfortunately right that we're in for a whole hell of a lot worse to come. So on that depressing note, we conclude this episode of Words Matter about hope and joy in American politics. Thank you, Steve. Seems appropriate to share John McCain's favorite quote, quoting Chairman Mao. After your close there, which is to remember, it's always darkest before it's completely black. And I am hopeful that there are way better days to come because we're hitting new lows and America has always had a capacity to reinvent and reinvigorate and do better. And God only knows we need to do that going forward. Well, but to bring it full circle, it's I agree with you. Um, the country is resilient. It's strong. Everybody who's ever bet against the country, really across the history of the country, would have lost money. Um, But we should understand and be honest, the State of the Union is not strong. Our leader is inept, corrupt, cruel, mean, and vile. The American position in the world is deteriorating. Danger is gathering. And the American people should be rightly worried about the state of government of the people, by the people, for the people. So we're going to stay vigilant, but we're going to stay hopeful, too. That's a great way of putting it, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Elise. We'll be right back with the Words Matter Library State of the Union Special Edition. On the eve of what should be Donald Trump's second State of the Union address, We wanted to revisit some of history's great State of the Unions. And all of these historic addresses that you're about to hear are available on Audible if you want to go back and listen to the full address and absorb and appreciate the history. We'll start with FDR's 1941 State of the Union. FDR, the 32nd president, he was about to begin his third term and He delivered the address to a joint session of Congress at around 2 p.m., which I find interesting because we're so used to 
in modern history, these addresses occurring at night. And I've been listening to Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, No Ordinary Time, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Homefront in World War II. And the brilliant Doris Kearns Goodwin provided some important context for the timeline and what was happening in 1941 as FDR delivered this seminal State of the Union address. The Great Depression had really exhausted the country. It was at about a dozen years at that point, and Americans were tenuously recovering but also still struggling, and they doubted the wisdom of overseas intervention against Nazi Germany. So in FDR's State of the Union, he presented his Lend-Lease program and argued that America had had a role in the world and a moral responsibility to aid our British ally against Nazi aggression. And I went back and did some reading on the history of this address, and his advisor and speechwriter, Samuel Rosenman, he said that FDR actually was incredibly involved in every phase of the speechwriting process and even coined the Four Freedoms phrase himself. FDR had been inspired by his wife Eleanor's musings on democracy and equality, according to Doris Kearns Goodwin. So let's listen to FDR's address, one of the finest works of persuasion and inspiring rhetoric in the history of our nation and the world. In the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understanding which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. That is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new order of tyranny which the dictators seek to create with the crash of a bomb. To that new order, 
We oppose the greater conception, the moral order. A good society is able to face schemes of world domination and foreign revolutions alike without fear. Since the beginning of our American history, we have been engaged in change in a perpetual, peaceful revolution, a revolution which goes on steadily, quietly, adjusting itself to changing conditions without the concentration camp or the quicklime in the dish. The world order which we seek is the cooperation of free countries working together in a friendly, civilized society. This nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women, and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose to that high concept there can be no end save victory. And the other presidential address that I downloaded as I researched this State of the Union moment wasn't actually a State of the Union. It's incredibly rare in the modern presidency for a president to not deliver a State of the Union. And so that's part of the reason that Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi's back and forth over the address has been so newsworthy. But the last instance in recent history where a president delayed a State of the Union was in 1986. And that was when the space shuttle, the Challenger, crashed the morning of January 28th. And President Reagan was set to deliver the address that day. And he decided, of course, he could not deliver the address as planned. And he knew he needed to speak to the nation during this time of great mourning. What I love about this particular address and how it happened was that a young female speechwriter named Peggy Noonan, who had been toiling away in relative obscurity in the old Eisenhower Executive Building, Don Regan said, quote, get that girl, you know, have that girl do it, because he knew that a woman could deliver the emotional center and core that such an address would need. I love that it was almost condescending for her to be tapped, and yet Peggy Noonan managed to help craft one of the greatest speeches in American history. What they managed to capture in less than six hours following the tragedy and preceding the address was in the history of speech writing nothing short of absolutely incredible. And so now we'll listen to that address, President Reagan's Challenger Memorial, a fitting testament to the courageous seven Americans who gave their lives to further our understanding of the great unknown world. 
And it also is a testament to Ronald Reagan's special brand of empathy and his leadership and his understanding of the president's very important role as comforter in chief during a time of tragedy. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes. Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista Mikulov. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the schoolchildren of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. I've always had great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on this mission and tell them your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. 
Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.